0: Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we just heard a reading from the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew 16, uh, which tells the story of Peter's bold confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is a hugely significant passage in church history. It's been debated uh, by Catholics and Protestants over the last 500 years. Questions like, well, what's the implication of Jesus renaming Simon Peter, renaming him Rock and giving him the keys of the kingdom? And and what's the connection between that and um, the emergence of the papacy in church history of the pope in Rome? And regardless of how we want to answer these questions and argue these questions, I want to uh, to contend that from the Protestant side, I think there's actually an even more obvious point in this passage that we tend to miss. And that is the simple and profound truth that the church is Jesus's idea. Do you see that in Matthew 16? The church is Jesus's idea. Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. In other words, the church was started by Jesus and it belongs to Jesus. This is so crucial for us to remember in our modern individualistic context where we're more comfortable speaking about like our personal relationship with Jesus than we are talking about being members of the church that Jesus started, right? We're more comfortable with like relatively benign words like community than we are with more theologically robust words like we're a part of the mystical body of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I actually like the language of personal relationship with Jesus and scripture certainly speaks regularly about the personal dimensions of faith. But that's not where the problem lies. The the language doesn't that that language, personal relationship doesn't pose the same kind of threat to our modern individualistic sensibilities and ears. What does pose a threat is the expectation that disciples of Jesus would all belong And be committed their entire lives to the church that Jesus founded. Devoted to the church that Jesus founded. In fact, if we really care about following Jesus in this life, we will find commands in the Gospels that we don't even have an opportunity to obey if we're not a part of his church. And I could list many of these, um, but you wouldn't even have to turn another page in your pew Bible before you get to one. In Matthew 18, uh, Jesus talks about what to do, how to confront your brother uh, when he sins against you. And everything that Jesus says in Matthew 18 would make no sense whatsoever if he wasn't assuming that all of his disciples would be a part of his church. Amen? And the fact is, the New Testament almost always uses the plural you, what we in the South would say, y'all, rather than the singular. And this comes through in the Greek, but we totally miss it in the English. It's just the word you. So when it comes to the life of discipleship, we need to get more used to thinking about we rather than me. And when it comes to the church, I think one thing that would be helpful uh, to start to think more in terms of, of scripture is to begin to think about the church as a she rather than as an it. Right? The church is the bride of Christ whom he lovingly laid down his life to sanctify. In Ephesians 5.27, it says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be, uh, that she might be without blemish. Now, if we really love Jesus, we'll love what he loves, right? If we love Jesus, we'll love what he loves. And Jesus loves his bride. So perhaps we need to embrace the church as a she rather than an it. That will help to change our perspective. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor. The church is a she, not an it. All right. So uh, our epistle reading today from Romans 16 has much to teach us about the church, about the bride of Christ, especially in her earliest years. So will you turn there with me? Will you grab a pew Bible and turn to page 950? And uh, Glenn did such an excellent job uh, reading that. I told him um, that's, that's sort of like our church's equivalent to like um, fraternity hazing is to ask somebody to read that passage. But uh, he did a wonderful job. Um, and I, I think at first, as we hear that aloud, it comes across as nothing more than just like a list of names. But in the midst of all these greetings, there are treasures to be found, guys. The great preacher and bishop... St. John Chrysostom, who was born uh, only shortly after the Council of Nicaea, had this to say about Romans 16. Listen to his high view of scripture that comes through. He writes, I think that many of those who have the appearance of being extremely good men hasten over this part of the epistle as superfluous. Yet, he goes on, the gold founders are careful even about the little fragments it's possible even from these bare names to find a great treasure. Amen. I want to be one of the gold founders that Chrysostom is talking about here. And that's the opportunity that we have this morning. This morning, we're going to pan for gold in, uh, in Romans 16. And I want us to notice six insights from the, New Test- uh, from the New Testament church that we see in this passage. Number one, the New Testament church... Was highly relational and affectionate. In verses 3 through 16, the Apostle Paul greets no less than 26 individuals from Rome. And in verses 21 through 24, he names eight additional people who are with him in Corinth. But even more than this, we notice that Paul adds something specific about almost every single person. Did you see that? At the time of writing this letter around AD 57, the Apostle Paul is stationed in Corinth in Greece. And Paul dictates this letter to the scribe Tertius, who's mentioned in verse 22, and then it's carried to Rome by a woman named Phoebe. And I, I want just, to just look at verses 1 and 2. I want us to look at the, the brotherly affection that Paul expresses for Phoebe here. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Notice sister, the familial language, both here and throughout the passage. He goes on to describe her as a servant or deaconess. See your text note, and we'll talk about that later. A servant of the church of Sancre. Sancre is located about six and a half miles east of Corinth. And so she's come there, and he's given her this letter. In verse 2, Paul asks that the Romans, quote, may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy Of the saints. She's one of the saints, Paul is saying. She's one of those who've been set apart by Jesus. And then on a more practical note, he asks them to help her in whatever she may need from you, whether right, whether food or lodging um, or finances for, he says, she's been a patron. She's been a financial supporter of many and of myself as well. Again, St. John Chrysostom comments see how many ways he takes to give her dignity? So placing on each side of the needs of this blessed woman her praises. Amen. Here and throughout the chapter, Paul's language is not only affectionate, but it's honorific. This is a man who loves the church that is loved by Christ. In verses 3 and 4, he praises the courage of Priscilla and Aquila, Prisca and Aquila, his, quote, fellow workers in Christ Jesus, whom he says, risk their necks for my life. In verse 6, he praises a saint named Mary as a hard worker. And in verse 8, he calls Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. The familial language continues with Rufus in verse 8, whom he says, Uh, about her mother, that she's been a mother to me as well. This is how the early church thought of one another and talked about one another as a family of saints. And how about us, guys? Would we ever think to speak of one another with such affection? Do we in our hearts set apart Alejandro as our brother and and Bev Lewis as our mother in Christ? I hope so. I, I know I try to. Because this is not just pious jargon. This is not just pious language or some kind of like bless his heart. Southern politeness, right? For out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, and our mouth should tell the story to the world that we're a family. That we love each other, that we sacrifice for each other, that we risk our necks for each other. In verse 16, Paul even says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. And this actually became a customary Christian greeting at that time. What we refer to in, in our church as passing the peace. In our liturgy, they called the kiss of peace in the second century. It was a way of kind of making good with one another before you go up to receive Holy Communion. And according to Justin Martyr, it was already a part of the regular worship of the church in the second century. And this was a highly affectionate form of greeting that may seem strange to us. I have to say, it's not altogether strange for me. I don't know where you were brought up, but... Uh, in the city I was brought up in Central Florida, there's a high Puerto Rican population, and I know that from middle school, my friends started kissing me on the cheek. I, I didn't know what was going on, but, uh, but culturally, it's not that distant for me. But does this mean that we should use verse 16 as justification to go around kissing kissing random Christian men and women in Tallahassee? That's That's probably not a good idea in our cultural context. The idea, rather, is to greet one another warmly, with greater affection than is usually given. Maybe a hug rather than a handshake. Now, the irony is that this passage is occurring while we are under renewed COVID protocol. Uh, And so... We won't pass the peace with our, uh, our customary affection. But you know what? That's a good reminder that sometimes the wave of peace can be more loving than the kiss of peace, depending on the context, right? But uh, anyways, that is the first message of Romans 16, that the early church was highly relational and affectionate. And we should be, too. All right. Number two. This is a consistent theme in Romans. The New Testament church was diverse. Last week, I mentioned the church's unity across ethnic, socioeconomic, and temporal lines. And here we see a church, do we not, of men, women, elderly, Jewish, Gentile, rich, poor. In fact, one of the things that scholars note is that several of these names, Ampliatus, Urbanus, Hermas, Philologos, and Julia, were most common among the Roman slave class at that time. On the other hand, you find people In this list, with houses big enough to host others, like Gaius in verse 23, you find high-ranking treasurers in Corinth, like Erastus in verse 22, and seemingly even members of the imperial household, like Paul's kinsman Herodian, verse 11, possibly the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the king of Judea when Jesus was born. And so the church is a family of hospitality, of missionaries, of tradesmen, of princes, and scholars, and benefactors, all to the glory of Christ. The body of Christ, brothers and sisters, is bigger than race. It's bigger than class. It's bigger than nationality or gender and certainly bigger than any of our modern self-definitions that we use to differentiate ourselves one from another. And so that politicians can make us into a voting block. The body of Christ is one. The bride of Christ is one. And Jesus is not polygamous or polyamorous. Jesus is devoted to his one bride and body. If we have trusted in Christ and been baptized, we are part of his bride and he has set his affections on us. The body of Christ is unified in diversity. All right, number three. And contrary to popular criticisms, the early church affirmed women. Do you see that in this passage? The early church affirmed women. Just last night, uh, my two daughters joined an international Zoom call for a ministry in Tanzania called Shade. And the CEO and founder of this ministry um, is an American woman. It's an amazing nonprofit. And I'm so grateful that my daughters are getting this kind of ongoing chance to learn from this entrepreneurial and kingdom-minded woman. We need, our our daughters need uh, role models like this. Amen? Amen. We've already noted this theme of the presence of women in Romans 16, but I want to give it some special attention of the 26 saints lift, listed in verses three through three through 16, nine are women. We've talked already about Phoebe and I've discussed in a previous sermon on 1 Timothy three, why I believe there were women deacons sometimes called deaconesses in the new Testament church. But in short, I think it's the most natural reading of several relevant biblical texts. And also, we continue to find the office of deacon, the office of deaconess, in the second and third and fourth century church. So sometimes if a text feels a little bit ambiguous, we can kind of, you know, see, see what happened like 40 or 50 years later. And like, oh, okay, well, that brings clarity to it, right? We also see in Romans 16, this missionary power couple, Prisca and Aquila from verse 2, who host a church in their house. As uh, is often the case in the New Testament, Prisca, or Priscilla, is actually listed before her husband. Now, whether that's because she was converted first and is more well-known, or whether she had a greater spiritual reputation, perhaps uh, uh, more obvious spiritual gifts, we don't know. But I do know in our present day, uh, Bishop Neil likes to brag on his very gifted wife, Marsha, that she's more widely beloved as a speaker than he is. Uh, he says uh, people really like to ask her to speak at their retreats, and sometimes they'll let her bring me along. And so, uh, so I'm very thankful this morning for Marsha and Neal. Uh, in addition to Phoebe and Priscilla, there are several others who are noted for their virtue and their ministries. Junia... The wife of Andronicus, verse 7, is even well known to the apostles in Jerusalem, being herself, it says, an early convert. So in summary, John Stott remarks, the prominent place occupied by women in Paul's entourage shows that he was not all the male chauvinist of popular fantasy. In fact, all told, it seems to me that women had a greater diversity of roles in the New Testament Than they have in many generations since doesn't it seem that way now admittedly this picture i'm painting is a bit one-sided someone may ask why did god create an all-male priesthood in the old testament why does jesus choose male apostles why does paul elsewhere speak of uh, the leadership of men in marriage and seem to restrict the office of presbyter or pastor to men alone And while it's beyond the scope of this sermon to answer those questions, one thing we can say, and I think this is really important to hold on to, it's not because women weren't valued or were unempowered or were told to remain hidden. It's not because Christian men didn't trust them as equals and partners in the mission of God. That's certainly not what we see at work in this passage. And what I find in the conversation on this topic is that in our eagerness to prove, like, our own side right, we often do great violence to the biblical text. Either we emphasize a passage like 1 Timothy 2 in such a way that it sort of obscures the vital role of women that we see in a passage like Romans 16, or we tend to cling to some sort of, like, modern egalitarian notion and basically, like, wish away several clear biblical texts Uh, on the role of men and one of the marks of an unfaithful teacher of all right you guys trying to shut me down here I get it (laughs) one of the marks of an unfaithful biblical teacher uh, is the propensity to rush to the gray areas so look out for that you see that in cults but you see it just more commonly and just unfaithful biblical teaching to interpret unclear biblical texts in a way that does violence to clear ones, right? To rush for the gray areas in our theology in such a way that it neglects what has been made black and white in God's word. Usually this doesn't arise from a desire to, to deceive, but from over accommodation to contemporary culture and just a failure of nerve, Right? a failure to say um, God's word is true. What does that mean for us? So let's not be afraid to sit with this tension. St. Paul was not a chauvinist, but neither was he a modern egalitarian. We need to put both of those notions to bed. He was an apostle of Christ inspired by the Holy Spirit so that what he wrote here in Romans 16 is actually God's word, And we only dodge him on matters like this to our own detriment. And as we clearly see here in Romans 16, the New Testament church is affirming of women. These next three points will come a bit faster. All right, so fourth, the New Testament church is rooted in actual history. This is what I talked to the kids about. We've mentioned Herodian, the great grandson of Herod the Great. There are scholars who identify Lucius, I think, with good reason in verse 21, with the author of Luke and Acts, who we know from the book of Acts was actually with Paul at this point. He's using we language at this point in the book of Acts. And we've also mentioned Erastus, the city treasurer of Corinth in verse 23. But what I didn't mention is the first century marble pavement in the ruins of ancient Corinth with a still legible Latin inscription from a man named Erastus. Now, the reason why that's significant is because people who had these kind of like uh, uh, um, civic jobs, kind of more posh jobs were uh, encouraged to make donations to the city. Uh, and, and, uh, and that really seems to be what's going on here with Erastus. My point to the kids was that these are real people and real places. And this is all the more obvious, um, when you visit, if you've ever had a chance to visit any of these ancient sites. But my favorite historical reference in this passage is one that someone brought up at Bible study on Wednesday night. And that is, uh, the instance of Rufus who's mentioned in verse 13, if you see that. And at first glance, Rufus just seems like a random guy with a good mom from the church in Rome. But he's also mentioned in the Gospels. So open a Bible and turn with me, if you would, to Mark fifteen, second Gospel in the New Testament, verse twenty-one. And now um, we need to remember that Mark is—he's uh, composing his Gospel from the recollections of the Apostle Peter while they're together in the church in Rome. Uh, Peter actually beat Paul to Rome. And uh, the scenario uh, leads to a quirky little reference in the passion of Christ. While Jesus is carrying the cross up Golgotha in the middle of purchasing the eternal salvation of all who would put their trust in him, it says in Mark fifteen twenty one. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. You guys see that? Now, what's what's going on here? Why, Why does Mark insert this seemingly random aside about Alexander and Rufus when it has nothing to do with the story? And here Mark is employing an ancient historical technique by referring to a living witness of a past event. In all likelihood, Simon of Cyrene, Cyrene is a a country in Northern Africa, uh, in Libya. Uh, In all likelihood, that man had passed away, but his sons were still around, and they could testify that their father did indeed help Jesus carry the cross up Golgotha. So Mark is basically saying, like, you know Rufus, you can ask him about it. He's among you. And since Rufus was known to the church of Rome, he became a sort of a sort of like living footnote. Right. Uh, At a time and place where the gospel of Mark was composed. Astonishing, isn't it? Astonishing. So, again, the New Testament is rooted in actual history. It's not a fairy tale or a piece of religious mythology. We're not used to. Religion and history coming together like they come together in biblical faith, right? We don't think about that. We think of the gospel as like some kind of like new philosophy about how we should behave ourselves. But that's not what the first apostles taught. They taught that the gospel is the good news. It's news. It's an announcement about something God has done in time and space. And they said, and, and, And God raised him from the dead to prove it to us. And we all talk to him. And then people are like, all right, here's where I get off. Here's where I get off the train, because that's just not the way that I think about religion. And Paul's like, well, get used to it. As C.S. Lewis has said, myth has become fact in the person of Jesus Christ. Number five, I want us to see that although we often put the New Testament church on a pedestal, and I can be guilty of this as well, they had their problems too. Because right in the midst of this honorific and affectionate section, we come to the warning in verses 17 and 18. The Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who would cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk, flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naïve. So the picture we get in Romans 16 is not all rainbows and unicorns. Amen. Paul would not have written this warning if the danger of divisive people did not actually exist. We know already from the last few chapters in the book of Romans that the church prized unity. But the other side of that coin is that they abhorred divisive behavior, whether in the form of unbiblical teaching or smooth talking individuals. Divisive people have always been and will always be a problem in the church. And the thing is that Paul wants us to know that they won't wear a sign around their neck letting you know that they're trying to be divisive. They won't announce to you, what I'm about to say to you, I know is gossip, but, but let me share this with you. No, that needs to be discerned by us, right? They will try to deceive the hearts of the naive, Paul says, and disguise their divisive intent. It might be disguised from their own hearts. But once they are identified, the solution in verse 17 is striking. Paul calls the Roman church to straight up avoid them. Isn't that stark? Avoid them. So if you notice incarnation that someone's gossiping or scoffing or attaching their name to unbiblical causes or posting some kind of weird conspiratorial news articles on online and and you confront them gently and they still persist. There comes a time when you just keep your distance Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But then Paul adds, Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. So again, we see that even the New Testament church had its many problems. However, that brings us to our last point. The New Testament church knew that good will ultimately triumph over evil. Let's say this together this morning. Good will ultimately triumph over evil. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Verse 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that an awesome promise for us to believe today, for us to believe this morning? And I love the contrast between the word peace alongside of crushing Satan. Right? Because it's a sign that peace is tied to the destruction of evil. Actually, one of the ways the New Testament describes the work of Jesus, is that Jesus came into the world to destroy the work of the devil. Jesus is like, he's the Terminator, guys, for evil. Right? It reminds me of Jesus's promise to Peter about the church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But it also reminds us of a much earlier promise in Genesis 3.15, where God promises to crush the head of the serpent through the offspring of Eve. And not only is this the first gospel promise about the Messiah, who will be the great, 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 great grandson of Eve, but Paul says that through Christ, it also applies to the church. We will ultimately be victorious over evil. This is a promise that God's people desperately need to remember in our times because it's so tempting to believe otherwise. This world is so self-evidently broken, isn't it? Just when we think the pandemic is ending, here's the Delta variant. Just when we start to believe our world is changing for the better, we hear the next story of racial violence, or of political corruption, or of ecological disaster, or of about religious persecution. And these stories are just unrelenting, one after another, after another, like waves beating against the bow of the Church of God. But Paul exerts the New Testament church not to fret, not to fret. At the deepest level, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Do you guys find yourself despairing and fretting over the state of this world? Remember that God will have the last word in history. Remember that you are not victims of circumstance as the news would have you believe but rather in the words of Romans 8, 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's summarize as we draw to a close. This morning, we've been, we've been panning for gold in Romans 16, and we've highlighted six insights about the New Testament church. The church is highly relational and affectionate, that it's diverse, That it's affirming of women, that the New Testament church is rooted in actual history, that it it also had its problems just like we do And number six, that ultimately Paul promises that good will triumph over evil and we'll get to be a part of that. When the saints go marching in, I want to be in that number. Just going to throw that out there. And finally, we remember that it's truly a privilege to be a part of the church. That was started by Jesus himself to be a member of his body to think in terms of we not just me and to be called his very bride. We remember that the church is a she not an it and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Amen.